0: Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and jump back in to wrapping up chapter four. I'll do a brief recap to get us back to where we left off. If you, have any, if you have any feedback or comments as we go along, please interject, um, see what we got. So we did talk, start off talking about the internal and external environment within organizations and corporate culture. Culture is a top-down thing, meaning that the way the president, CEO, owner, the way they act and operate is kind of the tempo for the whole organization. So, yeah, if you've got somebody that's highly energetic, positive, happy, that makes you feel secure and happy, you know. But if you've got an owner that comes in, starts barking orders and freaks out, it makes everybody else freak out a little bit, right? So uh, that's an important thing to have a, a good culture at the top. And it can be frustrating if you work in an organization and you know these things, and then you see uh, bad management practices at the top where they have a, either an apathetic attitude or they're not a positive, they're very negative all the time, yeah, that stuff is infectious. You know, like if, if you if you have a manager that shows up every day and they're very negative, people don't want to work around negative people, you know? I mean, you just don't, it, and it makes you feel bad, and it actually creates this hostile work environment that you dread going to. So you got to make sure that if you're at the top, you've got to set that tone and know that the things you do, say, and do affect others. So briefly, we talked about economic forces, technological forces, Sociocultural forces, natural disasters, and human-induced problems, government and political forces. All these different things are, are these uh, elements that a manager looks at. And a uh, manager, owner, leader, CEO, president, all the people in the leadership positions. <clears throat> but these are things that you should also look at. Um, you know, there's this mantra of this idea of hiring people that are smarter than you. And so if you go into a job, and you're an entry-level associate or whatever it is, uh, and you start talking about these concerns, I mean, you may be, like, scoffed at, or they may say, you know, it's good that you're thinking this way, you know. And they may see leadership potential or management potential in you that you're concerned about these different elements. And so taking the pickle plant as an example, you know, that is a very, um, the, the crop of the cucumber, they're dependent on that crop to harvest. And there's a number of conditions that could cause the harvest to be off, which could mess up their entire manufacturing process. It's, for example, it's not guaranteed next year that that cucumber crop is going to make the way they want it to. It probably will. Like, the odds are high it's probably going to be fine, but it's not guaranteed. And so when you're dealing with a resource that has to be produced annually and it has to not only be produced but be able to be processed to get to you so that you can deal with it, that is something that you're dependent on that supply chain. Now, like I'm saying, most of the time things are going to be fine, but think about all the products and services that we we use in America where there could be a, a bottleneck or a choke point. We saw the Suez Canal have a roadblock earlier this year. You remember when that happened? There was a there was a shipping lane uh, through the canal where a big big ship blocked the canal and it blocked all these different products from entering into the United States. Uh, when the oil or gas pipeline got um, ransomware earlier this year, do you remember when that happened? And the gas prices started shooting up because they said it's going to be a challenge to get the gas or oil you know to the lower states. Um, yeah these things happen, and these are these are forces that sometimes are out of control of the business, but uh, the business still needs to be able to look at these things, think about them so when they happen, it's not a blind side you know I've got a friend that I talked to recently and I, and we were just talking about things that potentially could happen in the future, and now, if those things do manifest, uh, he will be less likely to freak out, you know because we've talked through the game theory of. Okay, this is what the move is, this is what the counter move could be, and how you play it out. So um, all these things do parallel your personal life. I know I say that over and over again, I repeat myself, but I believe a business education has a lot of practical implications for individuals and families. And so the things we look at as a business, uh, as a manager, leader, um, same thing applies to your household. As a parent, I think about these factors and how that affects my family and my children, uh, and so if I'm concerned about natural disasters, you know, if, I'm, if that's something that's my hot button issue, maybe I consider moving my family to where that's not as big of a, a consideration, you know. So, um, but moving on, we talked about globalization. Uh, this, this is this uh, basically where the world has become a marketplace where we all interact with each other. And with everything in business and in life, there's give and take. There's, uh, there's cost and benefits. Uh, there's a lot of good benefits. It opens up labor and resources from around the world. The cost, though, is the labor cost in our country. So I can start a company, you know, start with just me. And I hire a few employees, and before you know it, I've got 100 employees making these things. And then I say, well, I've grew this company to 100 employees. They're all making these product, whatever it is, for me so I can sell it on the Internet. But I'm paying these people, you know, $15 an hour, You know that's a lot of money that's popping out, you know, on payroll. So I can actually contact a warehouse or a manufacturer in China to say, "Hey, I need this outsourced because this payroll's eating me alive." They say, "Oh, sure, we can make it over here for you know a substantially lower rate." And before you know it, I have to let go of all most of my hundred employees, those those jobs find you know go somewhere else, and then uh, I get my business still thriving because I'm making this this new product now. That what I just said it, it sounds like easy, but I've seen companies that go through this, and it's not just as easy as turning one switch off and turn it on. You know, have the idea of having stuff manufactured in China sounds great from a uh, resource standpoint or a payroll standpoint, but you've got to ensure the quality is still going to be there and it's still going to be that same type of product that you want. And some business leaders. They don't want to manufacture in China simply because they want to control the process domestically. They want to be here and manage it. So I've already talked about these uh, external forces, so I'm going to move on. On uh, Wednesday, I also talked about this uh, certainty and uncertain environments. Um, Nothing is certain, but with a reasonable predictability, if I'm a business person and I'm going into work right now, I have a reasonable expectation of what today looks like from a business standpoint. Tomorrow, probably still pretty reasonable. Next week, the same. Six months from now, who knows, right? If you're a business person in uh, 2019, in October, you have no idea that COVID is coming, right? I mean, but you have this reasonable expectation. I'm going to go into work tomorrow. It's going to be business as usual. But then come February, March, April, 2020, uh, last year, it was a complete, you know, just, just like, just a complete chaos. And there was a highly uncertain environment. They didn't know what they were going to do, how they were going to adapt. Uh, the, the best companies uh, that stuck around did adapt. They did make those changes happen. And so you want to have as much certainty as you can in what your business is going to look like and how it's going to function. Like, if I open up a restaurant... I have no idea how many customers are going to come in that day. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. But once I get established, you know, I've been around for a couple of years, and I, and I know the ebb and flow. I know that during the work week, office people are going to come in and eat. On Saturday, maybe not so much. On Sunday, you might get the after-church crowd. And I kind of can feel that ebb and flow. When I worked in the restaurant industry, I very much saw it. You know, I could tell you what time of day it was going to be busy, right? Or I could tell you uh, what time of day it was going to be dead, when you work at Starbucks for a little bit, Hood, you'll be able to say, yeah, from like 3 to 6 or 7, nothing. 7 to 8, maybe before we close, we get a rush. You know, people come in. I actually met a young lady last night at food line on the way home, and I like to talk to people. My kids, like, think it's cringy for me to just be polite and human to other people. But, like, if, if, you're, a, if you're a service worker, you're working at a register, or you're, you're a cashier at, like, a Starbucks or wherever it may be, I like to ask, how's your day going? You know, how's things going? How's your shift going? Cause I used to do those, those types of jobs. I used to be a server, you know, and I want to be treated like a person, not just, Oh here, you know, here's money, give me my stuff. So I'll ask them and my daughters think it's the cringiest thing in the world to ask people how their day is, you know, so like, dad, you're talking to people. How can you do this? Oh my God, you're so embarrassing. You just said hello to somebody. Uh, yeah, I don't understand, but in any case, uh, I met this young lady. And I said, you know, how's, how's, how's your shift going? How's, how's, how's tonight? And she was just telling me, you know, like, it's been, it's, it's just, she just got here, starting to get busy. But in the brief conversation I had, this was probably a one to two minute conversation. She had been there for nine months. And she told me that right before she was ready to leave, almost every night there was a rush. Like, she, there was this ebb and flow. Like, like, right before school gets out and work gets out, I'm sure it's dead in most grocery stores, right? But then when school gets out, People are thinking, "Oh, we got to get supper. We got to get stuff for tomorrow or the next day." So I am thinking, like four, five, six is a rush, and then it's dead again while people are eating supper. And then you get that last rush of people who forgot to get something and they need it before the store closes. And so after you hang around a while, it gives you more certainty in how your business operates. Uh, but the first six months, year, two years of opening a business, there is a there is a heck of a lot of uncertainty. My dad opened up a business. It's probably been. Gosh, when did we open this business? 2002, 2003. He started a small used car lot on uh, 701 in Clinton. Um, It was a great location, fantastic location. In fact, the person that bought it from my dad after the fact is still there, and they're doing really well. Um, But we just opened our doors, had no idea what the the business was going to look like, but we were right across the street from a large manufacturer, and we got a lot of business, and we did great our first year. Uh, And if I could do a do-over... We would make some changes, but uh, that that would have been a very long, good, long-term, successful business. Uh, I would actually be interested in doing something like that again at some point. So we'll see. All right. So organizational design and structure. I think this is kind of where we we left off. We talked talked about mechanistic versus organic. Mechanistic are these stable, certain, more certain, or low uncertainty environment. I don't like that low uncertainty. That's kind of hard to wrap your brain around. You have more certainty, or it's a, it's a more certain business environment, meaning there's a predictable model that you're going with. You better believe, like, huge companies like Target, Walmart, Best Buy, Big Box Retail, they can almost predict within a really good accuracy what their daily sales are going to be every day of the year. It's nuts how you can do that because they've got data that goes back decades at this point. You think about it, how long has Walmart been around? Like, what, 50, 60 years, something like that probably? So... Yeah, I mean, they could tell you. Like, I used to print out these reports at Walmart. They got, they got. Walmart is the largest private data management company in the United States for a retailer. They, they just got a ton of data, and so you could pick down to the category like bikes. Uh, I mean, if you look at bikes as that category, when do kids get bikes? Summertime. summertime what else? What's another big event? Christmas. Christmas. Bikes are one of the top ten items every year for kids for Christmas. Why is that? Because when a kid walks into the living room Christmas morning, they see a bike, it's like a big nice thing and they freak out and they, they, they start riding around the house. So like, bikes are big during the December and if you if you go, next time you're in Walmart, notice the bike rack and then look at it again like a couple weeks out before Christmas, it'll start to empty out. It'll be gone. And then ideally, not for Walmart, but it'll sell out. They'll, they'll sell out of bikes and They'll actually bring in Palsa bikes and have, they used to hire uh, bike builders just to come in and build bikes uh, over the holidays. But in any case, um, these categories, you can actually predict when these things are gonna start selling and how many are gonna sell and how long they'll sell for. Thanksgiving's another big holiday. There's all these big holidays. In fact, Walmart is nothing but one big cycle. It's a daily cycle and, and a annual cycle. So you go from Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, which uh, New Year's, which is uh, basically get healthy, they start promoting like treadmills and and weight loss products and things like this. And then you got Valentine's Day. Then you got I don't know where Saint Patrick's Day falls, but Easter's in there. And then after Easter, we're going to summertime, like out of school, you know that kind of stuff. Fourth of July. Then it's back to school, and then it repeats again every year like that. And they know basically what categories people are interested in, what's going to sell. If it's not selling, Walmart won't keep it. You know, if it's not something that's going to sell, there, there, there's, that square footage is too valuable. Every item on the shelf has to carry itself. It has to justify why this item belongs on the shelf. Because if nobody's buying it, th- it, it there's something else that could be sold there. And so uh, Walmart pays very close attention to that data. And I have no idea their exact methodology, but if I was a, um, a home office person for Walmart, I imagine they look at the best and the worst performing categories and or t- items. And if your item is consistently on a worst performing list, it's, it's gonna be removed from the store. They're not gonna keep it. And so mechanistic, these are these um, stable environments where you're, there's, uh, you have predictability of how things are gonna go, like in that seasonal adjustment Walmart does. Organic organizations are very much fluid and there's not a lot of predictability yet. So these are probably more young companies. We don't know exactly how things are going to go, but over time we can give you more data. You know, um, I love watching Shark Tank. I've talked about it before, but when you hear that the Shark Tank is a tough, you know, thing to do. When you go in there, they want data. They want you to tell them your sales, your growth, your um, uh, how much it costs to acquire a customer, customer acquisition cost, and young companies don't always have all that. Long data history yet they may have some, but you know if you've only been in business three months and you're saying I'm going 50 percent month over month, well if your sales the first month were a thousand and you did you know fifteen hundred second month I mean that's not really anything to brag about. Yes, it's a 50 percent growth rate, but fifteen hundred bucks. Now let me put that in context. If you're doing that as an individual and you're doing a thousand dollars your first month in sales as an individual with a small company, that's an that's kudos. That's great. And if you do fifteen hundred a second month, excellent. Uh, I'm talking about companies that are trying to go multi-million. You know, like if you're doing fifteen hundred, that's not that's not really in the ballpark. So, but organic organizations have this more uncertainty or less certain aspect, and they they uh, are more fluid in how they can make decisions uh, and less rigid uh, in their decision making and management process. And so, this is the kind of the evolution of how structures have have occurred over time. So we went from a highly mechanistic uh, functional structure to a divisional structure, which is where we have each department doing their own thing to a geographic structure where we have um, different things produced in different geographies to a matrix structure, which is uh, basically a hybrid model to a vertical team and then to a virtual structure. So, um, I heard a statistic yesterday and this is, I don't rely on the statistics. I'm just going to repeat it and kind of talk about it. But um, Kevin O'Leary is one of the shark tank. He's one of the sharks. And he was on a podcast I listened to yesterday. And he was saying that of the companies he does business with, 55% of the employees do not want to return to the office post pandemic. 55%. And they said if, uh, you make them come back, they're going to quit and go find jobs somewhere else because they've figured out that they can be just as effective working from home and not have to commute, not have to deal with the stress of that, the cost of that. Um, They're talking about like legal, and the reason they came up, they were talking about real estate investing and they said there's these law offices in big cities where bunches of lawyers work out of, but if you're a lawyer, all you need is a computer, you know what I'm saying, to be able to type and and, and create things. and so these lawyers are not going to go back to the office. They're, they're just going to, like, work from home and show up for court if they need to and things like that. But for the most part, they can get their job done at home, and they like that. They don't want to have to go to the office and sit in a cubicle for eight hours or an office in eight hour, for eight hours. It gives them a little more flexibility. I think that's great. Um, you know, I like the idea of flexible work environments where, you know, like when we, had, when we went virtual last year, it was a challenge for me. Uh, I don't have a home office, so I was – I actually would go out to my van and sit in my van and set up like a live feed for Zoom for class and stuff. But we made it work, you know, it's, it's definitely workable, but it just created a little extra challenge for me personally. But if I had a home office, uh, I still would like to come to campus and interact with students, but uh, it's definitely possible to do it that way. Uh, so this is a functional structure. This is a kind of an early stage company that is very flat, meaning there's not that triangle hierarchy. You've got the headquarters or the the people in charge, and then you've got just basically these different departments that report to them. So very, very uh, basic flat structure. This is the divisional structure I mentioned. Backing up, it would actually be better if I showed this after these uh, different structures. I need to move that slide. But the divisional structure looks more like this. It's a little more complex and a little more vertical because you can see you've got a person in charge, and then you've got these different divisions. This is kind of what Apple looks like, uh, Apple Computers. Uh, each product category at Apple, like AirPod, watch, iPad, phone, each one of those is a separate division, and their team focuses on that one product. I read somewhere, or maybe it was on an Apple Watch podcast, that they hired 200 engineers to work on the watch alone. That's how many people are working on the watch project. But 200 engineers, I mean, who knows how much they make? I mean, probably six figures each. So it's an expensive investment, but... This became the number one watch on earth. It's the most popular watch on earth, uh, and so they they had to put that money up because if they want that those engineers to create this thing to trade their time and talent for this outcome, they knew it was going to cost money. So, but look at like the Apple Watch alone as a single product could be a Fortune 500 company just that one product. You know so. Apple has all these other products, and I'm just using that as an example, but each one of these divisions has its own uh, separate, you know, way of doing things. There might be some crossover, like marketing may cut across all those, like you could just draw a line, connecting all the marketing, for example, or accounting and finance. There may be connections there, but for the most part, each one has a functional unit that they, they use for themselves. And this is kind of what a network team looks like. And what is, like when I look at this, I just think a mess, you know, because it's way too complicated. And I don't even like showing this slide, but the reason I show it is so you can see what a mess it is. You need to be able to, like if you can't understand it in five seconds, it's, it, you need to do something different, right? So like, if I'm at a meeting at a company trying to explain this to somebody, I could just see an owner or a president or a VP looking at this and saying, what is this mess? Like, you need to simplify this because time is money. And If I'm having to figure out all this mess, like, it's a problem. So, you know, you need to keep your reporting structure, keep your organizational uh, structure in a way that people can understand and make sense. Um, But, you know, I get, I've been involved in uh, organizations where there was a lot of lines drawn like this. But it creates a lot of complication, and it creates a lot of, uh, oh, God, bureaucracy. Because, like, as an example, I used to work for University of Mount Olive. I love UMO. But I had a boss. and Well, I had, a, I had a supervisor, basically. A supervisor had a boss. And then that boss reported to another boss, and that boss reported to another boss. But we also had – we were also under enrollment. So we had another VP over here that we kind of talked to. And so, like, if we talk to that VP, then they would talk to the boss's boss who talked to the boss who talked to my supervisor. You know, it's like, it starts to get really complicated, and nobody wants to commit to an answer because they don't want to, like, be wrong, you know? Because if they're wrong, they take a a hit. So just, you know, simple is better, it just is. This is a virtual structure, and you can see how simple this is. We're all working on a project. I actually just entered a virtual structure um, I actually got a position uh, as a editor with um, the North Carolina Community College Journal of Teaching Innovation. It's a new journal that just started. I'm going to help in the editorial review process. but we're very much arranged just like this. You've got a we're all basically twice a year we're trying to put out a journal. And we all work kind of in tandem around this circle of that mission of putting out a journal. journal. So uh, you'll have an author who will, send submit it to the editor in chief and that editor will disseminate the writing to one of us. Uh, and then we'll go through and uh, see if it's worthy of being published and then uh, offer our feedback and recommendations. And then if it is, it'll just kind of go around the circle and uh, go to somebody who can copy edit it and then prepare it for publication. So, um, but we have some people that do uh, some mild marketing and some like logo design and stuff like that. So. Uh, But, yeah, simple is better. This is a very simple, easily understood structure. So this is a – I like showing this slide. Um, It easily identifies what happens to create a product or service. So inputs, like when you create that cup of coffee at Starbucks – You've got coffee beans you've got water you've got other ingredients that go into whatever that specific customer wants those are the resources the raw materials the throughput is the process of making that cup of coffee you know the beans and water are nothing without you stepping in to grind them up process it through a machine create that final product and the output is that final product whatever that is same thing with the jars at the pickle plants you know like without you observing and making sure that they're right, the output is not going to happen. You know, you've got to make sure that there's no cracks or random glass in those jars. And so uh, you being there is a part of that throughput process. Same thing with agriculture. You know, you are the essential element in order to make the seed go from the seed to the final product. You know, you there to, to manage that process. And so... Uh, This applies to pretty much all products and services. Um, You have to have some type of raw material. And even if you're just producing a service, you may need some materials with that. Like, let's say that you've got a a grass-cutting service or a pressure washing or a resume writing, whatever it is, you need some type of equipment, you know, raw material, to make that final product, whatever it is. Um, So, yeah, inputs, throughputs, outputs. That is the process by which we go through to create those products and services. So we've talked about the external environment. You see these things on the outside. Let's talk about the internal environment a little bit. This is, uh, there's a formal and informal subsystem. You've got leadership, strategy, management, goals, marketing, operations, technology, and structure. These are the things that most people think about when they think about internal organization of a company. These are the, I guess, the inner workings. But there's also some informal things that you don't see as, as clearly the managers, the culture, the norms, the relationships, the politics, the leadership, you know, and, you know, that stuff is very important as well because you can have all these great formal subsystems, but then if you've got a toxic leader or you've got people who have very um, ideological beliefs one way or the other and they kind of bring that into the workplace and it creates some division, that kind of stuff can really uh, harm the workplace, you know, they say don't talk about politics and religion, right? And there's a reason you say that because no matter what you say, you're going to either offend somebody or uh, rub somebody the wrong way or people will create judgments on based on how you answer those questions. So um, it's always best just to, you know, respect individuals, what they do, what they think, and leave kind of these um, things that are potential for ideological charge to be, you know, left outside work. Um it does come up, though, believe it or not. Like, uh, every place I've ever worked, these things do come up. Um, and so, you know, you just want to be very selective in, in how you talk about things because, uh, you know, it can it can actually create challenges for you in the future. Let's say that, like, uh, you know, you've got this religious belief that is kind of contrarian to a the, the majority of religious believers in the area. And you start talking about that in the workplace. Well... When it comes time for a promotion, even though you have legally protected status, you know, you have a right to freedom from religion and not to be discriminated against, there is the chance that somebody could pass you over for a promotion because of things like that. Even though it shouldn't be that way, you know, but that that's just kind of like human bias pops up, you know. Let me give you one example. Let's say, like... Uh, that you hire somebody you know that you've been working with this person for several years they're, they're a great performer at work uh, you're online one night you go to their social media and under religion it says Satanist you know like and then you say then this person applying for a promotion in your company and you might not feel like that's that's a good fit and that one reason alone like is you know the thing that makes that decision you know and so yeah I mean you that's why it's so, like, important to, like, uh, kind of just stay on the straight and narrow when it comes to the workplace because you never know how what you say or your personal beliefs can influence these things. And the reason I bring it up is because there's this informal subsystems. After you work with people for a while, you become comfortable and talk to them uh, as individuals. I do this with students. I try to connect with you, like, what do you watch? What do you do? Tell me about your work. But there's still a boundary there, you know. Like, I don't want to get into uh, some of these things just for... Uh, basically, respect of my students. I don't want to, like, cross those boundaries, you know. So questions or comments on any of this? Okay. So um, the McKinsey 7 model, this is talked about in the book, the shared values. And so when we have shared values, these are things that come into play. The company structure, the systems, the style, the staff, the skills, and the strategy. All these things come into play, and I guess McKinsey had this thought of, let's come up with the 7S model, you know. But when we have these these elements working together, it forms this shared value. And a better way to draw this, in my opinion, is this. So you've got these six circles that intersect. And this shared value is what you get. And I've used this example before with students who learn different um, disciplines. So when you take a degree at Wayne Community, you're doing that business psychology, English, mathematics, possibly some humanities, uh, economics, and on and on, right? And so as you take these different disciplines, what happens is your framework is developed and you, you form these lenses that you can view the world through. So now when somebody talks to me about an individual, I can look through the lens, um, or let's say it talks to me about a company, I can look through the lens of you know, the psychology, the sociology, the economics, um, the you know all these different frameworks that I've experienced and assess things on a different level that I may not have if I've not been exposed to that information. Um, I went to the University of Mount Olive and Mount Olive is a uh, school that uh, really believes in uh, having a multidiscipline approach where you learn a little bit about all these different disciplines so you can have that perspective. So. But yeah, the McKinsey 7S model, these different elements um, form a shared value set um, going back to that thing, kind of like culture. This is neat. Uh, this, this talks about how the internal and external environment affects uh, the organization. And so, like, as the leadership, the president or officers of the organization, as they're assessing our company, the company performance, what it's doing, what it will do in the future, they think about things like SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. We haven't talked about SWOT that much in here yet, but we will. SWOT is more so covered in Business 110. Have you guys taken 110? Business 110? Okay. Yeah, we talk about SWOT in that, but just a quick recap. Um, SWOT can be done very simply or very uh, in a very complex way. But when I do SWATs simply, I just do SWOT right here. And I talk about, like, three strengths, three weaknesses, three opportunities, and three threats. And you can make them as long as you want. Like, you can actually do multi-hundred-page SWOTs for a company to really give them a deep dive into what they think, their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. What would you think would be the better strategy for a company to focus on what makes them strong or what makes them weak? What do you guys think? What do you think is the better strategy? Focus on what makes you strong or what makes you weak? Any idea? What makes you weak? What do you guys think? What do you think? Okay, so weak versus strong. I like this. Uh, it's, the answer is there's no correct answer, but think about it this way. Let's say that I'm evaluating a company on uh, two, three, four, four, four different metrics. And let's say the first metric is uh, low prices, the the second metric is people skills third metric is advertising and the fourth metric is service you know so let's say like uh the company is really good at people skills let's say on average they get like an eight uh, on the prices they get like a four or five on the advertising they get like a four and then on the service they get eight again so eight, these two eights are really high. Now you could focus on bringing these two up to the level eight on these surveys or you could try to make this even higher. And then when customers look at your stuff or you're evaluated on it, that's just like what makes you superior. You know, like, like if you look at, I I hate to keep harping on Chick-fil-A, but everybody gets the example. Like what makes Chick-fil-A great is not the price because they're more expensive, right? Like if you go to Chick-fil-A versus McDonald's, chick fil as going to cost you more. Um, the Advertising, that's not their strongest thing. I mean, you know, they do some, but McDonald's has got them beat on advertising, I think. You know, they do a ton of ads. But what makes them strong is the people, skills, and the service. That that really is superior. And so from Chick-fil-A's m- mindset, they're not going to compete on price. That's not their game. They're going to compete on people, skills, and service, and that's, that's what they're focused on. And so... Um, Neither answer is, I mean, correct or incorrect, but it really comes down to preference. What do you want to focus on? And so in this instance, I think it's good to focus on make, doing what you do and making it even better. Because what makes Walmart great is low prices. They don't have the people in the store because of the low prices. So I go to Walmart to buy, prices of things, buy things cheap. What makes Target great is they have nicer stuff. They're higher prices, but they also have more people. And so I see associates all over the place in Target all the time. And so if if Target wants to compete on price, they they can't because they have to lay off people, and they'll have lesser nice stores. And if Walmart wants to compete with people in service, they'll have to raise prices, which takes away their strength. So the the main the, the, Walmart has continually focused on less and less and less people in the store. Like, there's less people working at Walmart now than, than ever, in my opinion. Like, I see just... Nobody in there when I go in there working. So except for there are these people now that are doing the online order stuff. So, all right. So the the managers take these internal and external things. They form strategies. Then they um, make the organizational. Uh, they they flow it through the type of organization it is, and then they look at the outcome. And then they do an assessment and then repeat that process again. So um, this last slide I'm gonna talk about. It talks about these different kind of competing values. You've got the clan, ad- adocracy, hierarchy, and markets. And it really, um, once again, goes back to stability and to control. Clans focus on family, mentoring, nurturing, and participation. Adocracy focuses on dynamic, entrepreneurial, risk-taking, values, innovation. Hierarchy focuses on structure, control, coordination, and efficiency. And lastly, the market, uh, results-oriented, competition, achievement, getting things done. So... Uh, there's this balance between the internal and external focus, and all these things need to be consideration within this competing values framework. The idea is not to be too much in one camp. You want to, like, uh, have a balanced approach because you want to make sure that you have some flexibility, but you also have stability. You want to make sure that you're focused on the external but not forgetting about your internal. So it's, it's really a balanced approach, and just wanted to uh, point that out. All right, guys, any questions about any of this stuff we talked about today? All right, I know that was a quick recapping, uh, wrapping up of Chapter 4. If you do have any questions, shoot me an email. Don't forget about your homework, and I will send this out uh, a little later so you'll have a copy of the recording if you wanted to recap it, okay? All right, guys, have a great weekend, and I will uh, see you on Monday, okay?